Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Midven Deep Dive. Midven is a venture capital firm investing in early stage and established companies in the West Midlands. My name is Matthew Holding and I am an investment analyst. I will be co-hosting the show with my colleague Liam Bradley, who is a senior investment analyst. In this episode, we will be discussing the consumption of alcohol over lockdown with one of our portfolio companies, Breaking Free. They are a behavioral science business that utilizes evidence-based digital healthcare programs to target addictive behaviors such as excessive alcohol consumption, drug abuse, and smoking. Whilst they work with local authorities and the NHS Trust, they've also managed to create the world's first online platform to be used within the prison environment and address topics such as alcohol dependency, drug addiction, and smoking cessation. So without further ado, Nick and Glynn, would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi everyone, my name is Glyn Davis. I'm the Service Development Director at Breaking Free. I've been with the organisation since its inception um, just over 10 years ago now. And I've over 20 years experience in terms of working within addictions and treatment and recovery services from frontline practice through to commissioning of services. And my role with Breaking Free over the past 10 years has fundamentally been around implementation and supporting the organisation. Hello, my name's Nicolette Smith and I'm Client Services and Operations Director at Breaking Free. I've spent the last 15 years working in medical communications for one of the McCann group, working in one of their medcoms agencies. And I was responsible for the delivery and implementation of medical education programs globally, worldwide, in a variety of different therapy areas uh, for most of the major pharma companies. But I met, I met Jonathan and the Breaking Free team some years ago and when the opportunity arose to join them I jumped at it because the work that they carry out is of a real personal interest to me. I met and married my husband at the height of his drinking over 15 years ago. He is an alcoholic but I'm pleased to say now in very good recovery but I've obviously got first-hand lived experience of living with somebody with an alcoholic problem and I've witnessed the damage that it can do to that individual and also to families. So my name is Liam, as uh, Matthew said, I'm a senior investment analyst at Midved and I've had uh, the pleasure of working alongside Breaking Free for about a year and a half now and seeing them grow and develop and something that has become especially interesting during the COVID-19 outbreak when we have seen a switch to a more digital lifestyle and Breaking Free Online being a digital healthcare provider, I've obviously felt some of the effects of that. So, okay, so Nick or Glyn, uh, whichever one of you fancies answering, uh, do you want to just give us a brief rundown of what Breaking Free Online is, why it was founded, and kind of what you do in your day-to-day roles there? Sure. So Breaking Free was founded uh, back in 2011 by a team of clinical psychologists uh, led by Dr. Jonathan Ward. Um, And back at the time, we decided to look at evidence-based interventions that are being delivered within the healthcare system, um, particularly with the focus on addictions. And we were mindful that Uh, A lot of people are not accessing treatment because of various different barriers, whether that's shame, stigma, um, practical barriers such as childcare concerns, um, working constraints, um, distance to services. Um, And so we looked at developing a digital behaviour change programme that's known as Breaking Free Online. 
And that program is a comprehensive package of different techniques and skills that people would often learn from practitioners, clinicians in NHS or healthcare services, um, doing it kind of face to face with clinicians. Um, and what we've done is we've taken a lot of those interventions and skills that people learn and we've digitized them and put them into a comprehensive package for people to work through at their own convenience at home, within services, wherever they can get access to the internet. And we've looked at the evidence base to make sure that the interventions we use um, are proven to work and that are effective to help people in various stages of their drinking or drug use. And over the years, we've evolved the programme based on feedback from patients and uh, service users that engage with the programme, but also with the organisations that embed the intervention. So practitioners, peer mentors, service managers and commissioners, all of those experiences have fed back to us and helped us to iterate the programmes over the years. And as a result of the success of Breaking Free, um, in terms of helping thousands of individuals um, to overcome their difficulties with alcohol and substances, we've broadened out the offer to develop other digital interventions to run alongside Breaking Free Online. So, for example, um, particularly um, pertinent to today's conversation, we've recently developed Lower My Drinking, which is a preventative app for individuals to work through, learn skills to stop their drinking escalating so that it becomes problematic for them. Um, and so over the years, we've developed a number of different uh, products or digital interventions to support various different aspects of people to address their behaviour um, when it comes to drinking or substance use difficulties. It's very interesting that you mentioned the uh, shame and stigma often preventing people from seeking help themselves, because I think as probably Nick, you're very aware of yourself, given your situation. It's, um, I think it's not something that people should feel ashamed about. And if you're actually going to seek help about it, then if anything, you should be proud of what you're doing. Because as we know, addiction can affect anybody, regardless of who you are or what circumstance you're in. Absolutely. But, you know, that stigma is there. And, uh, you know, with, with, a, with an alcoholic, with somebody that is actually drinking that excessively, there is that definitely that that they don't want to they don't want to admit it they at the, at the beginning they don't want to admit it but once they have actually admitted they have a problem with alcohol and actually sought help um i think you're absolutely right yeah it's it is something they should be proud of and i'm certainly very proud of my husband now i think where that really comes to life is nick's experience really shows the impact um, of somebody accessing services and actually achieving their goals and their recovery and it is, it's really I think important just to reflect when you've got almost 600,000 uh, dependent drinkers in England alone with only sort of 18% of those people receiving treatment there's a lot of individuals out there suffering um, so that's why with something like Breaking Free is hopefully it can complement and enhance all of those services that are already existing just to try and broaden out the reach and access for individuals. Definitely. And I think if we uh, think about the effects that alcohol dependency can have on people around that individual as well, obviously 600,000 dependent drinkers, how many people, have, how many of them have got family or friends who have been affected by it as well. Um, it's obviously a very important service. And I guess the fact that breaking free can be accessed 24 seven without the need to visit a clinical professional. 
is one of the the major selling points because obviously alcoholism is not something that's just there nine to five during the uh, day. Absolutely, because a lot of the focus of breaking free is we we are really focused in terms of demonstrating the efficacy and the impact of the interventions that we develop, and there's a real big focus and commitment to research and evaluation within the organisation. But we're aware that we often focus on health outcomes. And as you're alluding to there, uh, Liam, that the societal and cultural impact of drinking and, and dependent drinking is problematic. But particularly in areas such as domestic violence, for example, um, and that is going to be a real area of concern during this period of lockdown recently, where people are isolated and going to um, be going through somebody's um, journey with them. Um, when it's not always good and services aren't always available to support those individuals. Definitely, I think that is something that I've seen uh, articles about, about the link between the drinking and the rise in domestic abuse during the lockdown. Obviously, it's a bit of an unprecedented time, but um, definitely a very important issue that has to be looked at. Thank you for the introductions, and it's very interesting to hear what Breaking Free does. I think it's quite important for our audience to understand what the UK drinking culture is like, perhaps pre-lockdown and during lockdown, and from your perspectives, how does this compare to the rest of the world? I mean, I, I suppose um, it is difficult to get a handle on um, drinking patterns because it is very complicated and very mixed throughout um, the UK alone. But also when you start to look at other parts of the world, people measure alcohol consumption in different ways. Um, so within the UK, we're very focused on measuring alcohol consumption via alcohol units. And it's really difficult for most people to understand uh, the quantities of what they're drinking. Um, Labelling on alcohol uh, bottles and cans is not often as clear as it could be. Um, but certainly when you start to think about alcohol today, it's probably um, over 50% more affordable than it was back in the 80s. It's much more widely available, but also within the UK. Um, certainly back in the 90s under Tony Blair, there was a real focus to try and broaden out drinking to more of a European um, uh, cafe culture style approach to actually get people to drink throughout the evenings and nights and actually try and make it more socially acceptable but to be done in a more responsible way and I think it's fair to say that most of the UK hasn't responded particularly well to that approach in terms of uh, being a growth in antisocial behaviour as a result of um, some of those uh, changes in drinking policy and, and as a result of that we have seen a real focus in recent years to try and uh, address that particularly um, antisocial behaviour that results from um, drinking, particularly binge drinking um, on the weekends. And we've seen a real growth as the, I suppose, some of the harms resulting from um, that kind of binge drinking. And I think the most recent stats are something like there's been a real growth in alcohol um, hospital admissions with I think it was something ridiculous like over a million hospital admissions um, over 2018 as a result of alcohol consumption um, and that's pretty much it's something like between eight and ten percent of all hospital admissions so we know the UK is not particularly great at handling 
um, drinking uh, in a, a regulated and sensible way. And I think that's why there's been a real concern in terms of looking at social policy to try and address that. Other parts of the world, um, there are other countries that are perceived as, as drinking much heavier, such as the Baltic nations and, and Eastern Europe. But again, it's, it's not often as easy as comparing uh, one country with another, another. It does tend to be apples and pears that you're kind of trying to compare. But certainly within the UK, I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of addressing people's attitudes and, and um, behaviours when it comes to drinking. Uh, and I think when the smoking ban came in a few years back now, um, I think that also led to a lot of people drinking more at home and buying cheap alcohol from supermarkets. And as a result of that, I think, again, people's attitudes to drinking has changed and shifted quite a bit. Um, but certainly, I think it'll be very impacted by lockdown. It says a lot that um, we as a nation celebrated when Boris Johnson announced that the pubs were going to be reopening on the 4th of July. I don't think I've seen such a, a happy social media presence for a long time. Yeah. But I guess, I, I suppose in one way, it's more the trend towards people drinking by themselves at home is, is more worrying than people going to the pubs because I guess with the pubs, people seem to drink less because obviously you're paying more for each drink that you get. And also you've got the social element. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know we come back to stigma again, but I feel like there's much more judgment and people are less willing just to have a drink by themselves in their house. And if people are consuming large amounts by themselves without that social element, and it is a daily thing, that's when it, it starts to become worrying. But no, that stat on the hospital admissions is, is very interesting. I didn't realise it, it was that high. I'd be interested to know how many of those were students. Well, it's, it's also, um, it, it, it's really highlighting a need for alcohol services and interventions within um, hospitals. So again, a lot of the funding has been um, challenging for local authorities um, and NHS trusts to put in alcohol liaison teams within hospitals to try and deal with what is termed frequent flyers, those individuals that keep returning week in, week out, every few days because of their alcohol consumption and so you need someone to intervene and provide interventions like breaking free or low my drinking in order to support those individuals to break that cycle but it's challenging because like i say with budgets being cut and changed it's not always there's often a focus more on treatment rather than prevention and that's one of the reasons we developed low my drinking is to try and offer that full spectrum approach of interventions really but um Certainly, I think during lockdown, there would have been a, you know, a real shift in terms of why people were drinking. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we can come on to the, uh, the trends before and during lockdown in a moment. Um, but it is also interesting what you say about not being able to compare the different areas of the world and how each culture drinks. And I guess it comes down to what is culturally accepted in that nation. I mean, it's like Russia only declaring beer and alcoholic beverage in 2011 or something, yeah. I think it was. It's really challenging because what we try to do whenever we develop interventions, we've recently taken Breaking Free Online to North America. And within Breaking Free Online, people are able to monitor and track how much they are drinking. And of course, in the UK, we are able to use alcohol units because it's the unified alcohol measure across uh, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But of course, even just going across to Ireland, 
example, let alone to North America, to Canada or the US, everywhere measures those alcohol consumptions differently. So the real simple thing in terms of being able to benchmark how people are doing in terms of their drinking between all those different countries, we um, are having to be quite creative in how we measure that so that it's um, there, there is parity in terms of um, those, those measurements. Definitely. And that's, um, I'm sure, it's an interesting challenge that you have to try and deal with. I mean, I know there's certain, uh, there's still certain stereotypes associated with each culture. I know um, I'm half Irish and I think I've lots of times been told it's okay, you can take your drink, you're Irish anyway. Um, so I don't know if that's just naturally in the blood or that's what people perceive to be in the blood. Bit of faith, I suppose. It's, uh, yeah. it's certainly cultural stereotyping that we're all prone to. Um, and, you know, again, that's one of the real needs for education in terms of helping people to understand um, what drives people's drinking. But it certainly isn't as simple as just putting it down to um, your nationality. And, and there is often that uh, debate as to whether you know it's genetic or whether it's um, social or whether it's a hybrid of, of all of that but certainly you know it's uh, places like Ireland have, have, have got alcohol as part of their cultural norm and you know it's, it's part of our societal and cultural norm here in the UK as well isn't it in, in terms of um, how we have our Alcohol is part of sporting events, is part of um, celebrations, religious ceremonies. Alcohol has always been there. And as a result of that, people have always got into difficulties with it. And it is about how we kind of uh, educate people to counter some of those difficulties that people get into, really. And also when people do get into their difficulties to make sure they've got access to the interventions they need to. So again, being able to access interventions like lower my drinking or breaking free, we find is incredibly helpful, but it is about broadening that access so that individuals can access those interventions when they need them. I think that um, leads us quite nicely into our, our next question, which is about drinking trends during lockdown. And I think one point that I was uh, gonna touch upon there is, uh, obviously you mentioned it, say it's in the UK culture because of sporting events and um, whether the lack of those kinds of events has had any direct impact upon the way that people are drinking? I think that people have been drinking for different reasons during lockdown. I mean, I think you can probably all remember right at the beginning when lockdown began, we witnessed panic buying in all the supermarkets. Um, there was the whole toilet paper thing, obviously, which just was everywhere. Um, but there was this hoarding mentality um, where people were just stop, stocking up on all the non-perishable food items such as pasta and rice and tin products, all the aisles were bare. But I'm sure you'll probably remember that all the alcohol aisles were also bare at the beginning. You know, when you went into the supermarkets, there was no alcohol anywhere. Everybody just panic bought it. They wanted it. Um, and, yeah. and there's evidence that, you know, if you actually have the alcohol in your house, in your cupboard, in your fridge, readily available to you, you're more likely to drink it. If it's there, you're going to drink it. Um, and it, it was evidence that the UK sales in alcohol rose 22% in March. As soon as lockdown began, alcohol sales went up. Um, but the lack of availability of alcohol in the supermarkets and off-license um, actually led to an increased number of alcohol-related seizures in hospitals. Um, I actually spoke to a public health team in Sandwell, and they actually told me that they specifically had seen a a marked increase in the number of alcohol-related seizures. And that was because those dependent drinkers 
weren't able to actually get hold of their daily fix of alcohol. Ah, interesting. So that's what caused the seizure in the end then. Yeah. So yeah, they've basically just gone into a into a seizure because they've had to um, just they haven't been able to get the fix of alcohol, and yeah, and it's led to a seizure. That is very interesting. I'm not sure if it's uh, interesting or worrying that the only thing that keeping a lot of us from drinking is the actual proximity to alcohol. But I suppose that applies to a lot of things, really. Where I think there's been a lot of contributing factors, Liam. So you know, obviously, everybody's regular routines have imploded during lockdown. People, everyone's been working, either been working from home or been furloughed. So you haven't got your normal routine. You're not going to an office. So you're not getting in a car. You know, you're not actually going at, going to an office. You're in your own home. And I don't know how well you all feel, but I think weekdays and weekends just seem to sort of melt into one. You know, there seems to be no differentiate between the two. And people that did have those routines in place where I don't drink on a weeknight, you know, no drinking on a school night, only at the weekends. I think that routine has just all been blown away and people have been drinking on a daily basis, you know. I think that there was, yeah, there was some research taken, commissioned by um, the charity Alcohol Change UK and they found that um, one in, they, they ran a survey of about 2,000 people in the UK and one in five, so 21% of those who drank alcohol before lockdown are now drinking more often. And there have been various reasons for it. I mean, that some some women have said that they've actually been dealing, they've been drinking to deal with the pressure of homeschooling children. Um, <laughs> I was going to say I don't blame them, but um, <laughs> that's something I've had to deal with. But I'm sure it's very stressful. But yet, um, it's interesting there's more people, um, well, people are drinking more if they drank before. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who, who wouldn't drink very much now who are probably uh, drinking more. And I'm sure, I'm not sure if it was a similar study or the same study, but a lot of people saying that if they do drink on the weekdays, they start a lot earlier now. Exactly. And you just, just, just think about the, the you know, the, the, the people that are furloughed. We're no work to do, and we've had all this glorious weather uh, during, you know, April, May. It was absolutely glorious weather. You know, what were these young young people, particularly, you know, in the gardens, um, not only drinking on a daily basis, but drinking earlier and earlier in the day, which um, which is really quite worrying. But there is a flip side. There is a flip side. I, you know, on the on the positive side, there have been people that have used lockdown as an opportunity to to get fit, um, and have actually decided that they will try and reduce their drinking. And I think this research that Alcohol Change UK undertook showed that more than thirty three percent of the drinkers that they surveyed told them that they have either stopped or reduced how often they drink since lockdown. So there is some there is some good news as well, and I think there, there is are, some good news as well yeah there are a few people in our office who have either not drank at all during lockdown or started at the beginning and then realized that they were probably drinking slightly more than they did beforehand and have since either stopped completely or dramatically reduced the amount that they're drinking so um yeah i think it, it's like a, a flip of the coin really isn't it it can go one way or the other yeah in that same study it looks like heavier drinkers claim to have increased the amount they drink for instance, 38% of those who were surveyed fell in the seven units in a day category and are drinking more during lockdown. I suppose this is a question for you, Nick. Do you agree that lockdown has brought the best or the worst out of people? And have you seen an increase in the division between the two extremes, i.e. people are either using lockdown as an opportunity to stay fit 
and on the other extreme, heavier drinkers are drinking more and they're the ones who need the extra support. I understand that there are disparities with the data in terms of gender, age and socioeconomic factors. No, I think I agree, I agree with that. And I think that what we've got to do is, is, is look at how we actually come out of lockdown um, and help those people um, take active steps to manage their drinking as we come out of it. One thing that um, we have had feedback on is that for lots of individuals that do hit that tipping point, a lot of the services we work with have had a drop in referrals over lockdown, um, potentially because of the fear of attending a service in person. So the fact those referrals have dropped would indicate that those people that may normally have been coming forward will be at home. They may well have been addressing their difficulties at home, but there is also the potential risk that their difficulties will just have continued or or got worse. There's a potential risk that there will be a, a flood of people seeking help as we start to come out of lockdown and people are either more exposed to what they're doing and how it would impact their usual daily life and also more willing to attend face-to-face appointments or try and get some sort of help than they were at the height of lockdown. Especially as unemployment hits home and all the other difficulties that the pandemic's going to bring home, you know, issues of bereavement for many many families. And yeah, there's potential for, um, without sounding um, melodramatic, you know, there is the potential for a sort of tsunami of health consequences and issues following the pandemic. And all of those issues that Nick has just flagged, I think, continuing for the foreseeable future, um, particularly until whatever the new norm does become more stable and, and people do sort of start to continue to get back to a degree of what life was like before the pandemic. But um, with unemployment, bereavement, all the issues that come with that around paying the bills, you know, the stresses that that causes, alcohol is certainly... Uh, a useful coping mechanism for lots of individuals but with that comes the health consequences and all the other risks and and, uh, issues that result from that really so without sounding too bleak it's really a time for services to step up and um, that is why at the start of the pandemic Breaking Free as an organisation took the decision to make the interventions freely available to anyone within the UK um, or Canada so that people could start to address their difficulties in the absence of being able to access traditional services or services in the, the traditional way. Yeah, I think um, I, I was going to touch upon that. It was um, definitely something to be applauded and has hopefully helped a lot of people. And of course, hopefully you'll see the business benefit sides of that as um, yeah. people realise what your service can provide and how much it has helped certain NHS groups during the period. And if we as a society now will shift to more working from home, and a lot more digital kind of aspects to life, which it's looking like we very well could do, the need to have that digital service is not going to go away overnight, even if there was a vaccine, I suppose people now have realised that they can get a lot more done from the comfort of their own home. And, and that's been one of the real challenges for us. When, when we started 10 years ago, we introduced Breaking Free at a time when people weren't as accepting of virtual care provision or digital interventions. In fact, walking into a alcohol or drug treatment service 10 years ago, staff were only just getting used to using computers for case management pers- uh, purposes or recording of patient healthcare um, information purposes. And it's taken almost a decade to get that cultural shift within the workforce for people to start adopting 
ways of using computers and digital. Um, the one positive we've seen for services um, during lockdown is all the staff across the UK and Canada and the US, people really have started to embrace digital interventions and everything that brings with it. The fact you can have virtual groups so that patients or clients can access a group support intervention or a programme like Breaking Free in the comfort of their own homes is really valuable, particularly when you think that we work across areas like Devon, Cornwall, Cumbria, really rural areas that people would struggle to access normally because of transport routes and, you know, just the sheer distance of getting to services without the added complication of social distancing. So the fact services have really started to get on board with digital bodes really well for going forwards. But we've always said breaking free in digital isn't the panacea, but it has to be part of the solution. And now that services are embracing this approach, um, it bodes really well for further iterations of the program and how we develop the service to further support individuals that need that help, really. Excellent. At least you are starting to see a, a trend in people accepting that digital healthcare provision a bit more than they used to. Yeah, that's, that, that's definitely what we've found with the conversations that we've had with services over lockdown is that they definitely want to continue to offer digital as part of their offering moving forwards. That's a uh, really good news. I do feel uh, obligated to say, in case anyone was worried, this this is a Barocca tablet and it's not actually a pint of lager. So uh, <laughs> for people listening and not looking on the camera, it, it looks a bit like lager, but I am not drinking at uh, quarter to 11 while discussing problems with drinking. Um, that'd, be <laughs> <laughs> that'd be a bit ironic. Okay, well, um, I mean, I think moving forward, um, if you could possibly just tell us a bit also about what the other things that Breaking Free Online provide apart from low my drinking. So obviously you deal with substance abuse as a whole, so smoking, drug addiction, outside of um, yeah, just alcohol. So I don't know if one of you would like to kind of give us a brief overview of what other services you provide. Our, our core product is Breaking Free Online, which is designed to address um, over 70 different problem substances. So when people get into drugs, whether they are illegal drugs like heroin or cocaine, all the way through to prescribed medications like diazepam, Valium, or other medications. Breaking Free is designed to help break that link between dependence and a healthy lifestyle. Now, we've evolved that programme for the prison estate, so it has been adapted to resonate with individuals within prisons and jails across uh, England and Wales. And that's really important because, um, again, interventions are very limited uh, within those settings. Um, and we've recently adapted those programmes for Canada. So again, along with there being a Canadian version, um, there's a French-Canadian version. And the reason we flag that is the programmes themselves have very engaging multimedia approaches, such as voiceover throughout all of them to help talk to the individual and to humanise the programmes and the person working through it. We've also adapted the content for the US community provision, but also uh, US corrections. And so we're excited to be finally uh, launching across areas like Ohio, Department of Corrections, where we're seeing some great successes there. Um, and alongside those particular programs, we developed preventative data change techniques and, and interventions via uh, a number of different apps. So we have Lower My Drinking that we've been talking about today in terms of preventing people escalating their drinking. And we've developed My Quit Routes to support people in terms of their goals around smoking cessation. 
that is specifically designed for public health teams across uh, the UK to support their provision and offer alternative approaches to help people in their goals, whatever they may be in terms of smoking or drinking. Very good. And do you think, have there been similar trends with other substances as you've seen in drinking? So do you think that is something that has also increased during lockdown? Yes and no. It's been a really mixed bag um, because right at the start of the pandemic, there was everything like Nick was describing earlier in terms of alcohol with people hoarding and purchasing different substances. But of course, a lot of The drugs within the UK come from outside, so transport routes and supply has certainly impacted on uh, a number of different substances, but it's also meant people accessing those particular drugs have had to be quite creative, so turning to stuff like the dark net and buying drugs online, but it's also meant individuals have also started to see increases in prices so again where you get issues around supply and demand and as a result of that it has made a lot of individuals address their drug use to actually decide to quit and use this time in lockdown to quit smoking for example but you've certainly seen i think a a, a continued trend um, in terms of people wanting to use drugs for all the reasons Nick described earlier from lockdown that, you know, with being furloughed, having more time on your hands, but still with disposable income, all the way through to people having to just deal with boredom and wanting to enjoy particular drugs. So again, we've seen a recent growth in the rave scene again, in terms of illegal parties cropping up around the, the UK. And with that, you always um, are going to get uh, a certain level of drug use. But then we see the polar opposite to that, where because of gyms have been shut down, we've seen a drop in uh, steroid consumption and people um, being able to access stuff like needle exchanges as they would normally do uh, in order to keep their sort of performance enhancing substances and and image enhancing um, drug consumption going. So it's been a real mixed bag, but um, I think in a few months post lockdown when stuff does start to get back to normal it'd be really interesting to see the stats on how different substances have changed um, and people's attitudes to accessing services um, has also changed but yeah it's certainly an area of concern but also an interesting area to see what the impacts are in terms of recovery rates and um, people engaging with treatment services Definitely. So uh, the, the, the wrong time to get involved in the drug dealing business, it seems, at the start of lockdown <laughs> due to the supply and demand issues. Um, Potentially, but also with that, it means the prices go up because if you can't get what you need, then what people do have costs more. And as a result of that, we've spoken to some services where by people have had to turn to alternative means to fund that drug use. So traditionally for a lot of um, what's known as problem drug users, your uh, heroin and crack cocaine users, traditionally the links with them and acquisitive crime um, is how people often fund a habit when you end up using a gram of heroin a day or smoke a couple of rocks of crack a day. You need to fund that and that's really difficult to do with legitimate means. So people often turn to acquisitive crime like shoplifting or theft but of course during lockdown when all the shops are shut it's difficult for you to then sort of figure out how you're actually going to fund that drug use so it's um, again pros and cons to it um, because certainly lots of people will have been paying a lot more for their drugs uh, during lockdown than they would have done previously and I think that's something that then proves how important the service you provide is is because of the knock-on effects of the substance abuse so Without exactly. alcohol, the uh, 
yeah, the antisocial behaviour with drugs, the crime that goes alongside that. Exactly. And, um, obviously, breaking free online is uh, dealing exactly. with all of that in some way or another. And, and, and this is it. And it's something, again, we're really mindful of is that when somebody wants to address their difficulties, you really need to be able to offer the interventions there and then. Um, and particularly in places like Canada and in certain parts of the UK, where we're seeing growing waiting lists for people to be able to access services because of the additional constraints of lockdown, being able to access something like breaking free just means people can access those support interventions and learn those new coping skills instantly. So that's one of the things we're really proud of is being able to strengthen services resilience in terms of being able to offer something during this time when they are struggling to adapt to um, the new world. And they've, they've done really well services across North America as well as the UK in adapting. But being able to offer Breaking Free Online is certainly something we're really pleased to be able to um, help individuals access if they need it right there, right then. I think that um, leads us quite well into our next question, Glim, which is about what measures individuals can put into place to limit their drinking if they are concerned for their own well-being. Yeah, I'll take that one, actually, Liam. Um, so I think obviously there are measures that people can put in place to manage their drinking if they're at the increasing risk level. I think if they are dependent on alcohol, like my husband, for example, some of the measures that are recommended for people to put in place don't work for those dependent drinkers. So one of the first ones is to actually set controlled drinking goals. And that was always one of my absolute bugbears with my husband. I can remember at, at the height of his drinking where he was going to see the GP and he was at that stage of massive denial wasn't admitting that he had a problem, but being told to try and set controlled drinking goals to him as an alcoholic, I mean, he definitely is an alcoholic. There was no way he could actually manage his drinking anymore. It had just gone yeah. way past that. He was dependent. So I think if somebody is dependent on alcohol, my only advice would be to seek professional help to actually get that professional advice on how to actually control your drinking. But for those that are at the sort of, you know, the increasing increasing risk level, you can, setting controlled drinking goals for your personal drinking goals for yourself can can work. Um, you know, like we were saying earlier, you know, no drinking on a weeknight, um, only drinking at the weekends. Trying to set yourself a target of only 14 or less a week, units a week, um, spread over a minimum of three days, try and have a couple of days out completely alcohol free. So that, that, that is a good way of trying to manage your drinking yourself. Also, purchasing alcohol in small, in small amounts, as I was saying earlier, you know, at the beginning of lockdown, people panic buying, stocking up the fridge, stocking up the cupboards with alcohol. It's much easier for you to manage your drinking if you only if you if you've run out if you actually don't have a bottle of wine in the fridge you can't drink it but if it's there you can so actually just think about only purchasing alcohol in the amounts that you actually want to drink as a maximum for that week thinking of healthy alternatives rather you know people drink for different reasons socially why don't you go and meet a friend for a run in a park instead of going to a pub and drinking alcohol you know just think of some different some different parts of your social life you know go for a walk try some exercise just different healthy alternatives to drinking i think that's a very very good advice and i think yeah sometimes i guess if people are just drinking because they're bored 
there are so many other things that you can do, especially now that we are coming out of lockdown. But uh, healthy alternatives. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, people, social occasion, I mean, that's the other thing. My husband will say, you know, there's alcohol everywhere. You know, as you said earlier, Liam, you know, if it's a birthday, if it's a wedding, if it's any celebration, any family celebration, there's likely to be alcohol there. Look at um, look at non non alcoholic alternatives. That's that's something that you can do as well um, to limit your alcohol intake. I think um, non-alcoholic drinks that replicate alcoholic drinks, so non-alcoholic spirits or non-alcoholic beers, I think are constantly improving in quality. Again, again, I would, again, I would say that is definitely different. For I mean, my husband wouldn't touch. He wouldn't. He would not go anywhere near a non-alcoholic alternative no, he wouldn't drink an alcoholic beer he wouldn't drink an alcoholic spirit anything that he associates with alcohol he would just go nowhere near but for other people yes i think that very definitely is a very sensible alternative yeah and i think for a lot of people as well it was because they used to not be very nice or they wouldn't taste like the original but i think a lot of brewers have it would of taste too like much that. like the original for my husband that's what he wouldn't want that's what he wouldn't want and maybe that's interesting because I guess that just highlights the fact it answers the question. Some things will work for some people and they won't work for others. And I guess absolutely trying different methods and seeing which ones help you and then just trying to stick with. Thanks for that, Liam and Nick. And I'm sure that the audience appreciates it. The next question is to do with the future breaking free and visions. You've already touched on how existing problems can be solved, but I wonder what going forward, what is the future that you envision coming out of lockdown and thereafter? with your presence in North America, Canada, and the UK. Glenn, do you want to talk about the Canada and the UK? I mean, I've got some, some thoughts around um, some discussions that I've had with some local public health teams. They were talking about bringing back a responsible retailer scheme, which has previously been run. And that's a scheme that's aimed at people who sell alcohol in licensed premises, specifically off licenses. And and the aim of this responsible retailer scheme is to remind businesses of their legal responsibilities to promote reasonable, responsible sales attitudes and inform adults who buy or attempt to buy alcohol for and on behalf of the under 18s of their legal responsibilities. The Trading Standards Office, they will give license holders, designated premises supervisors and their staff free training and the opportunity to participate in a committed partnership to improve the standards. It's all about getting the retailers and their staff to recognise the issues around alcohol, um, deal with difficult situations, and support and advise customers. And it just seems like a really good idea to me to actually just bring this back in. As I say, it was a, it was a it was a local public health team that told me about this, um, and I've been looking at into it. And it seems that it was something that was run a few years ago, but it could be brought back in again. It's very interesting, and hopefully, obviously, everyone would like the retailers to take a bit more responsibility for their impact upon. I don't want to say the crisis, but the uh, the matter. Definitely, one of the other key areas is Scotland not so long ago introduced a minimum unit price <laughs> for alcohol effectively because what we know around problem drinking is that particular alcohol beverages like white cider for example cause particular health harms due to the high level of alcohol and the cheap price meaning that people uh, such as street drinkers and um, other people that effectively just want a really 
to get as drunk as they can, as quickly as they can. We know that adding that minimum unit pricing has a really good evidence base uh, or an evolving evidence base to demonstrate the impact on the uh, public as a whole. And Scotland have recently done that. I think it's something like 50 pence per unit. Um, so for a pint of beer or something, it's not going to be a huge amount, but for a bottle of cider, uh, 15, 20% or whatever, 10%, it's going to be much more expensive. And it's going to help people opt for less alcoholic drink. And Scotland have done it not so long ago, and the evidence base is certainly growing for it. But equally, uh, certainly Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, they're all looking at it at the moment. I know Wales are putting in preparation to bring it in. England aren't yet, but um, hopefully when they see the impacts that the other uh, UK nations are achieving, uh, it will be something that they'll consider. That plus the initiative Nick's been describing, plus um, looking at stuff like the advertising of alcohol consumption, how that's associated with stuff like sporting events again and, and sort of indoctrinating young people and teenagers and stuff into drinking culture. There's lots of stuff the government can be doing at a, at a higher level, all the way down to what local authorities can be doing at their level, all the way down to what we can be doing to take personal responsibility ourselves in terms of our alcohol consumption. Really. Historically, um, tax has been the method used in the UK to adjust the price of alcohol. Alcohol Change UK, I noticed, have actually also called for the UK government to introduce a treatment levy, which is a 1% above inflation increase in alcohol duties to be spent on supporting treatment services, which I thought sounded like a really good idea. Definitely. I don't think you'll see anyone arguing with that across the treatment sector. It's certainly a very sensible option to help start contributing to funding the NHS and healthcare providers wanting to address alcohol and substance issues difficulties. So I suppose it's no different to the sugar tax on fizzy drinks? Exactly. It's literally the same concept. That's really interesting. I I didn't realise that there was a tax intervention for alcohol based on units. Do you have a time in mind for this to be introduced in England? Not really, because Scotland introduced it back in, I think it was 2018. So it's only fairly recent. But the evidence from other countries around the world is that growth will have an impact. Uh, it's a basic kind of behavioural approach to stopping people looking for cheap, cheap alcohol options. Um, unfortunately, there seems to be some reluctance for some reason at Westminster as to why England would want to do it. But those devolved governments in um, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are already starting to introduce it. I know Scotland have started to look at evaluation already. And as a result of that, I believe the other nations are looking to speed that process up. There seems to be some reluctance um, in England to do that, but we're not really sure why that is, um, whether it's ideological or what, what the reasons may be around that without getting political. So in terms of long-term vision for the company, are you hoping to be the go-to platform for drinking and substances abuse abroad and in the UK? Or are you hoping to be supportive to the practitioners who are meeting patients at the moment? So are you trying to be complementary or digitalise the entire user experience? and therefore be directly accessible to patients via their phone, for instance? All, all of that. Um, I mean, what we won't be doing is replacing humans. We know the most powerful approach is a blended approach of human interaction with the clinician or practitioner 
plus the content and evidence base of breaking free. So the combination of both of those interventions and support networks are really important. But we certainly want to be the go-to option in terms of the digital approach. We believe we are the most evidence-based digital intervention for substance use disorders here in the UK and now in North America. We are likely to have lots of exciting news coming from Canada in the um, coming weeks and months uh, about being the um, not just the most evidence-based but the go-to option for Canadians and for North further broader North America as we move into the US. We are the only option within the prison estate here in the UK and globally. So what we want to do is just continue evolving our offer. We keep making it better and better based on the research and evaluation that we do, the feedback from the people using the programs and the people um, implementing them within services and commissioning them. But we have got to where we have in 10 years based on that kind of feedback and dedication to evolving to what we perceive as gold standard intervention. And those have all been evidenced through the accreditation processes that we've achieved uh, to date. So, for example, we've been um, endorsed by NICE, the National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence at the uh, UK Department of Health. And we have also been accredited by the Ministry of Justice's um, accreditation panel, uh, which is known as CSAP or the Correctional Services Accreditation and Advice Panel which is an international panel of experts from around the world, Australia, New Zealand, North America, Europe, um, as well as the UK. And those professors and experts have reviewed the interventions and approved them as being a gold standard intervention. Um, and we're the only ever digital intervention to achieve that status on the Ministry of Justice. We've been approved by Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service as an effective regime intervention. We are embarking on similar accreditation processes in North America currently, but it's the research that we've achieved today and having 33 peer-reviewed research papers with several more in the pipeline is what's really demonstrating that breaking free is effective and it's proven to work. And we want to just keep expanding that. As we do that, we want to apply all of these processes and accreditation processes to all of our products. So not just breaking free online, but moving to lower my drinking and my quick route. Um, and we will continue the offering so that we develop interventions like breaking free online to meet the needs of all these services implementing them. So providing e-learning platforms for all those services to cascade training for their practitioners about how to get the most out of the interventions, developing outcomes, monitoring dashboards so that all commissioners can see a return on investment and identify performance metrics and see the clinical outcomes that Breaking Free is achieving and stuff like um, developing a virtual care platform so that practitioners and clinicians can talk directly to their patients and service users using Breaking Free or other interventions that we develop. So it's a good start in place. Uh, we're really excited now to be moving into North America and watch this space. So Orca are an independent organisation who evaluate health apps and they help the NHS and other health and social care organisations to choose health apps that will safely make the biggest impact in terms of improving outcomes. And what Orca do is they they look at an app's compliance with over 160 different aspects 
including standards, guidelines and best practice in three areas. They look at data and security, clinical assurance and user experience. And when they carry out this review, it enables them to give the app an overall score. Um, they give it a score and anything over 65% meets their quality threshold and it's then included on the Orca apps library. Um, now Orca have reviewed Lower My Drinking um, and we're very proud to say that we were given a score of 76%, which actually ranked Lower My Drinking number three of 59 alcohol apps that they have reviewed. Very good. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of work has gone into that, achieving that score as well. Yeah, and we're also in the we're also in the process of being included on the NHS apps library as well. Um, that's just been delayed due to due to the COVID crisis and lockdown. Um, but we we envisage that we'll actually also be low my drinking will also be included on the NHS apps library before the end of the year. I think um, a glowing indictment of the services that you're providing, really, from the pair of you listing off. Uh... <laughs> the accolades that you've managed to achieve um so um i guess i mean i don't know whether it's worth touching upon how people would go about accessing your service so is it through their local nhs doctor's surgery or hospital or can they access some material online um so okay well i'll just explain to you so lower my drinking is actually only available to people in areas in the uk where it has been commissioned by a local authority Okay. Yeah, people go to their local services and ask whether they can access Breaking Free and whether it's available in their local area. Okay, that's um, fine. I mean, I don't know if we want to touch upon, if we want to keep that part in the podcast or not. I think I knew that anyway, but um, <laughs> yeah. I was just wondering in case people thought, oh, how, how do we access this? So, um, well, that is, that's a valid point, actually, Liam. So if people are listening and they say, oh, well, yeah, I'd like lower my drinking, should we? So I guess what we should be saying is that uh, people need to be uh, putting pressure on their local NHS group to commission the service, basically. <laughs> that brings us to the final question, guys. So do you have any books or resources that you can recommend to the audience? Are there any authors that you particularly like on this topic of alcohol consumption? Um, Glenn, the, now I didn't actually have any specific books are there any i mean there's obviously there's a very wide range of self-help books that are available um out there but i personally don't have any recommendations do you claim the the one book i think that's particularly apt for lockdown and coming out of lockdown is from a psychiatrist called norman zinberg who basically uh, studied a lot of veterans coming back from the Vietnam War and he was trying to understand why lots of individuals were coming back as heavy drinkers and drug users and why some continued in that vein and why others came back and were just integrated back into community leaving all of that um, sort of drug use and, and problem drug use behind and he wrote a book called uh, Drug Set and Setting and it was basically looking at the actual substance itself, alcohol or whatever the drug may be, but then also looking at the sets, so your mindset, your mental state and, and your attitudes and so forth, but then also your setting and your environment. So if you're locked down or, or sort of um, in a particular difficult environment, how all of those contribute to people continuing to use substances or drinking too much or others not. And I think it's particularly apt when we come out of 
lockdown to think about how lots of us will be going back to our relatively normal ways of living and whether the issues we've been discussing around heavy and problem drinking during lockdown will continue or whether people will just kind of move back to um, normal everyday life. So I think for me, the most apt kind of uh, book to reference in this kind of context of a discussion would be Drug Set and Setting by Norman Zinberg. But that for me, like I said, it's, it's a bit geeky in terms of um, substance use, uh, but it, it's certainly a, a, an excellent starting point um, in terms of looking at these type of issues we've been discussing, really. Excellent. Well, I think that's a, a good way to end. And um, thank you both for your time. Thank you for joining. It's been a very interesting. Um, and I guess we'll wait and see now, I suppose, over the coming month or two, whether the, as you say, the uh, the drinking will continue or whether we'll see a reduction and kind of how people will cope with that. Absolutely. Be interesting times. It will, for for many reasons, I'd imagine. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep it. We'll keep a close eye on this one as well. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.